Let's join together in prayer. Father, we thank you as we come to your word for the gracious ministry of your spirit. We pray that he may be our teacher, that he may enlighten us in your truth, and that he may empower us in your way. As we ask it in our Saviour's precious name. Amen. Well, for the benefit of any visitors, we've been working our way through some of the parables of Jesus that are found only in Luke's Gospel. And this morning we come to the parable found in the opening verses of Luke chapter 18, the parable of the persistent widow. And those of you who have been with us on a regular basis will know that some of these parables have been quite difficult to understand, quite difficult to interpret. But this parable is relatively straightforward. As Matthew Henry, uh, a scholar and Christian gentleman at times past puts it, it has its key hanging at the door. He says, Christ spoke it with this intent to teach us that men ought always to pray and not faint. Of course, Matthew Henry was using the old authorised version. And in those days, man wasn't the fighting word that it is in some circles today. But in any case, Luke's Greek doesn't have man. It has they. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This is one of the places in scripture where the, the, the chapter break, which was added, of course, not by Luke, but by someone else, is not all that helpful. That's why we read some of 17 as well. The narrative continues, the story continues unbroken from the previous chapter. Right from verse, seven, verse 1 of chapter, seen, chapter 17, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples. Luke says 17 and verse 1, and he said to the disciples, and he's still speaking to them. It's clearer still in the original because there is there in the little word also. And he also told them a parable to the effect that they should always pray and not lose heart. And so the point of this parable is that we, Jesus' disciples, should always pray and not lose heart. That is, become discouraged and give up, not on praying, but on following Jesus. The NIV catches the meaning well. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. And so before we look to this parable for encouragement to pray, we should ask ourselves the question, am I a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he my Lord and Saviour? Am I following him? Is he the one who died on the cross for me? My faith fixed in him as the one whose death paid the price of sin. If he is, if your answer to these questions is yes, then this parable is for you. If it's not, then your prayer should be the prayer of the tax collector from the next parable. God have mercy on me, a sinner, for Christ's sake. And then follow him. And then pray that you may not give up on following him. Also, while this parable is often looked at for a general encouragement to prayer and persevering prayer, in fact it points us to a particular kind of prayer. Some Pharisees had asked Jesus when the kingdom of God was coming, 
What they were looking for was the kingdom of glory. Messiah come in his glory to put Israel at the head and to smash their enemies and to bring in the kingdom that God had promised in the Old Testament. And Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It was there with Jesus and his disciples. Because Jesus had come in the first instance not to establish a kingdom of glory, but a kingdom of his reign in the hearts and lives of people who would receive him as their king. The kingdom of glory would come, but only after much suffering. His suffering and the suffering of his disciples. He hints at their sufferings in verse 22 of chapter 17. The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. And he predicts his own sufferings in verses 23 to 25. And they will say, look there, look there, look here. Do not go out to follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up in the sky from one side to the other, so will be the Son of Man in his day. But first, before he comes in his glory, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And it's their sufferings, the sufferings of his disciples while they waited for him to return, that form the background for this parable. Days would come, Jesus says, when they would long to see one of the days of the Son of Man. A brief glimpse even of the triumph of his kingdom, but they would not see it. And when he does come, he says, it will be to a world not expecting judgment. It will be like it was in the days of Noah, when people lived as though nothing would happen. Right up until the day when the judgment of God fell, the flood came and swept them all away. It will, says Jesus, be like as it was in the days of Lot, when life went on as though it would go on forever until the day when Lot left Sodom and fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. Yes, says Jesus, I will come. But my coming will separate those who live for this world from those who live for me, for God and his kingdom, even if they are so close as to sleep together or work together. Jesus says, one will be taken and the other left. And his disciples ask, where, Lord? Left where? And it's a puzzle, isn't it? What does he mean? The best meaning, the best way to understand it, I believe, is the simplest. They'll be left for judgment. And so this is the background to this parable. It covers the period of time between our Lord's first coming and his second coming, when his disciples would be left without his visible presence in the world. Friends, this is our time. This parable is for us. We look back on his death burial, resurrection and ascension and we look forward to his coming in glory. And our days are like the days of Noah 
when people were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage with never a thought for judgment until the judgment of God fell upon them. Our days are like the days of Lot, when even Lot's wife lived for the things of this world and did not fear the judgment of God. In fact, just as Peter said it would be, it is in our day. Scoffing. Scoffers will come, says the Apostle Peter, in the last days with scoffing following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So why should we pray? Well, firstly, because the alternative to praying is to give up. The alternative to praying is to give up on following Jesus. There are many reasons, of course, why people do give up following Jesus. Uh, Judas gave up on following Jesus because he was disappointed in Jesus. He was looking for glory and Jesus promised him suffering. He hoped for power and prestige in the kingdom, but he was disappointed. And then there was Demas. One time a fellow worker with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle says that he deserted him for love of the world. And there are many saints who have given up on following Jesus for better prospects or for power and prestige or for wealth. They'd thought about following Jesus. They'd given it serious consideration. They'd even perhaps professed to make a beginning. Uh, But they found the cost too high or they were disappointed in their expectations, or they realised that they could do better in the world if they were not Christians and they gave up on following Jesus. If only they had prayed. If only they had asked God to help them to understand the futility of living for power and prestige and wealth and all the things that this world offers when they can't keep them. And they can't satisfy their hearts. And which must soon, in any case, be left behind. What's the use of trading Christ for all the riches of this world, for all its power, its honour and glory and popularity, when even if we had them all, they would still leave that aching void within, that emptiness. And then we can only hold on to them for a few short years at best. However, these are not the reasons why Jesus told this parable. For it's clear from the parable and its application of it that the reason he had in mind was injustice. The injustice all too often endured by his disciples. It is, I think, difficult for us living as we do, sheltered, protected uh, lives in a good land like Australia, relatively free from persecution, to, to appreciate the great pressures upon Christians in many, if not most, other countries around the world. Pressures to give up on following Jesus. Very difficult, for example, for us to imagine living in places where persecution of Christians ranges from verbal threats to physical, physical assaults where there is often pressure on children from Christian families in schools because of their faith. 
where the village folk gang up on Christians and prevent them gaining access to the well, to water, where church buildings are frequently burnt down. We don't know that sort of pressure. But if we follow Jesus, if we nail our flag, as it were, to the mast, openly profess the Christian faith, we will be persecuted. The Apostle Paul says to Timothy 3.12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And friends, if you haven't found out already, let me tell you that ridicule is as dangerous as violence, as physical assault. It's so unjust. And injustice tends to bitterness, and bitterness tends to discouragement, and discouragement tends to giving up. And the second reason why we ought to pray is that if we pray, if we cry out to God, if we give the injustice we have suffered for Christ to God, then he will avenge us. God will do justice for us. And that knowledge will strengthen us in endurance. See, Jesus in this parable is not teaching that God is like this unjust judge who would not give the widow justice but that God is not like this judge. His point is that if an unjust judge could be pestered into doing justice for this widow, then how much more will God, who is just, who is righteous, do justice for his own people when they cry out to him? You see, in those days, uh, in the henpecking, order of society widows were at the bottom they were the weakest they had no man to stand up for them no one to earn them any money they were the bottom the weakest in society and judges were among the most powerful and influential and this judge neither feared God nor cared about people and so when this widow this insignificant person asked him to do justice for her. Give me justice against my adversary. At first, he ignored her. But what she lacked in power, she made up for in persistence. And so even though he had first refused to give her justice to avenge her, eventually he did what she wanted. Not because he feared God. Not because he cared for the woman. But she was afraid that if her her continual coming might wear him out, Luke says, for a while he refused, but afterwards he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so she will not beat me down by her continual coming. Uh, We husbands, we we know about nagging, don't we? (laughs) Uh, We know what miracles can be accomplished by nagging. Uh, Perhaps this widow learnt to nag when she was trying to get her husband to do a few small jobs around the house. I was wondering when I was preparing whether the nagging might have been the reason for his premature decease, which left her as a widow. Well, that's only speculation. But it worked on the judge, didn't it? It worked on the judge. For even though he was unjust, her nagging wore him down, and he intervened to do justice for her against her adversary. And now, says Jesus, if nagging will persuade an unjust judge to do justice for a widow, how much more will God 
do justice for his own. Notice how, as he makes this solemn pronouncement, he is named not Jesus, but Lord. The Lord said, hear what the the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? Now, there's a, a translation difficulty here. And we need to look at it because it understands, it affects the way we understand the text. And it's in the second part of the verse. The authorised version says, though he bear long with them. The English Standard Version, which I think we're using, I'm using, says, will he delay long over them? And the NIV says, will he keep putting them off? And the revised version, which follows the original very closely, says, and he is long-suffering over them. And the problem is, and the reason for the varying translations, it arises partly from the the brevity of the expression. It's very short, therefore it's not easy to work out exactly what it means, but mostly from the words that follow. How can he is long-suffering over them mean what they would usually mean That is, that he's slow to act when it says in verse 8, I tell you he will do justice for them speedily. However, if we allow that speedily might not necessarily mean quick answer to our prayers, then we can give he is long-suffering over them their normal meaning and that they point to the fact that although we pray, God, generally speaking, delays to do justice for us. God is not exactly at our beck and call. The question then is, is our faith in him sufficient for us to believe that God will do justice for us, even though when we cry to him day and night, he is long-suffering over us, that he is slow to act when we call. Even though he doesn't give us justice, what do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. God says, wait. We find the same question from the Lord's people in the Apostle John's vision in Revelation 6. He says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true. How long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. You see, God's people, unjustly put to death, cry out to God for justice, for vengeance. It's God's prerogative to do it for them. And God says, later, he's long-suffering over them. He says, wait. He restrains his judgment. In this case, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been, suffering like injustice. And this then is the Lord's question. The Lord said, listen to what the unjust says. 
And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night and he is long-suffering over them, even though he is slow to act for them? And his answer is, I tell you, he will give them justice speedily. I said a moment ago, it's this speedily that gives translators problems. And it's the reason they have tried to find meanings other than he is long-suffering over them. For it said, how can it be said that God would do justice speedily if he is long-suffering over them? That is, if he makes them wait. But the fact is that speedily can't mean soon. That is, near in time. For the simple reason that the scriptures everywhere teach that our vindication will not be until the final judgment. That final justice for us awaits the coming of Christ and the last judgment. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, New Christians, a young Christian church, congregation, suffering persecution for the kingdom of God. And this is what he has to say to them. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6, 7 and 8. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's when justice will be done. The Apostle John, in his revelation, which we referred to a moment ago, describes in that vision the last judgment as the downfall of Babylon. In Revelation 19, he says, verses 1 and 2, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And Jesus in this parable is teaching exactly the same thing. The setting of this parable is his teaching about his coming, about the last judgment, the day when the Son of Man will be revealed. And Jesus told this parable to teach us we who are his disciples, that we should pray and not lose heart, that we should not become discouraged by injustice or oppression, that we should not give up on him, or put it around positively, that we should continue and persevere in discipleship, even if we should suffer injustice for his sake. But it does seem that he doesn't expect that we're going to take much notice of what he says. Or that many of his disciples would take notice of him. Others perhaps. He ends his application by asking this haunting question. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is not a subject that we think about very often the subject of injustice the suffering of Christians because of unjust treatment 
we know so little of the injustice that is a daily part of daily life for our brethren in other countries. The indications are that the protections that Christians have enjoyed in Western societies and which has enabled us to flourish as Christians without significant injustice, that this protection may not continue all that much longer and that we too in Australia may in the perhaps not too far distant future suffer serious injustice as faithful disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now I hope, I I make no profession to be a prophet. I'm neither the prophet nor the son of a prophet and I may well be wrong. It may well be and we pray that it is that the Lord has a glorious revival just around the corner which will transform the church and transform the nation. What then would be the case if our experience began to imitate the experience of those persons to whom the writer to the Hebrews wrote when he urged them in chapter 10 of his letter, recall the former days when after you were enlightened you endured a hard struggle and suffering, a hard struggle and sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. If it happened to us, if it happened to you, would you call upon God for strength to patiently endure injustice? Or would you give up on being a disciple of Jesus? And we don't know what the future holds. But the scriptures appear to teach that during this age, that is the age between the first and the second comings of Jesus, a persecution of Christians will be a part of the life of the church. It, it will be happening sometimes here and sometimes there and sometimes more intensely and, and sometimes less. However, it appears that as the end of the age draws near, persecution of Christians and injustice for Christians will be general, worldwide, not confined to some particular place or other, and increasingly severe until it is extreme. Surely Jesus' question, however, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth, suggests that when he comes, there will be so few Christians visible anyway. Perhaps just so few Christians. So few who believe in God who will do justice for his people that they will, because most of them will have given up on following Jesus because of the injustice. And friends, this parable of the persistent widow calls us to reckon with the very real possibility that as disciples of Lord, the Lord Jesus in a hostile world, we too could suffer injustice for our faith. Not just in an end-of-the-age catastrophe. It doesn't take an end-of-the-age catastrophe to turn people from following Christ. But in the here and now, Maybe just in isolation, maybe just mockery, maybe just rejection. 
Will we resolve that come what may, with God's help we will always pray and not give up. That no matter what injustice we may suffer for Christ our Saviour's sake, we will cry out to God day and night, no matter how long he might wake us wait, knowing that when his perfect time does come, he will do justice for us. And when he comes and when he does it, he will do it swiftly. Let us pray. We acknowledge, acknowledge our God uh, that too often we think ourselves strong. We boast, if not out loud, to ourselves that although others would deny you, we wouldn't. Teach us our weakness. Teach us to pray. And make us strong with your strength that we might not disown the Saviour who bought us with his own blood. We pray it in his name. Amen.